Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this season of preparation. Uh, Lord, um, I'm always so grateful that when I spend time in your word that you do prepare my heart to receive greater things, uh, things that I had not imagined. And uh, for that, Lord, um, I, am, I am truly thankful. And for the witness of those that go before us. Um, today we talk about Mary. What a blessing and what a witness of, of gentle and yet firm faith uh, in, the, in, the face of, in the face of the unreasonable, in the face of the impossible. And, uh, and yet you are a God of, of all possibilities. We thank you for Paul and for his witness in the midst of persecution and challenges to the gospel and for his faithfulness. And so, Lord, uh, these saints that have gone before us never save us, but we thank you for their witness, for their testimony to us, for it's a testimony we trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to Acts 16. Grab a page here if you didn't get one. Grab one. So I just directed, again, these are good maps, and this gets them all on one page for you. So these are really neat. We went through the first missionary journey. You see that, how it went to Cyprus and then to Asia Minor. And when I say Asia Minor, right, you understand Turkey really is that location in the New Testament that's Asia Minor. And now we're moving to Europe. And so Paul wanted to go north uh, to Asia. Paul and Silas uh, and Timothy were headed north um, to go to, into, into Asia. And it said the spirit of Jesus prevented them. And then a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now Macedonia is a country again today. Um, I don't know, Aaron, you could give me this. Because um, it was a region in empires. Was it a country ever before? No, it was a, it was a region. It was like the, the Hicksville of Greece. Yeah. So they, so they were kind of the backwards part. So they were kind of Greek, but kind of not. Mm -hmm. And so when Alexander and Philip, Alexander the Great comes in, they adopt Greek ways and Greek customs, and he had Aristotle as his teacher and everything. Mm -hmm. But they were always kind of looked down upon by like the Corinthians and the Athenians as kind of like the backwater mm -hmm. of the Greek world. And so there's still a debate now on if Alexander was Macedonian, as in did he have Slavic blood or did he have Greek blood? Oh. And so it's actually a big point of contention. So if you're in northern Greece, they have a region called Macedonia, mm -hmm. but then there's the country of Macedonia, and they actually fight over all the like symbols of mm -hmm. ancient Macedon. Mm -hmm. So there's some ambiguity there, mm -hmm. but culturally he would have been Greek, yeah. and that's the thing. It's just kind of, it's like being from, you know, it's like rural Alabama showing up in New York City sort of thing is would be the equivalent. Oh. Wow, that's quite a Right, but that's that's how they that's how they would have viewed him, is yeah. that he showed up as this military commander, and then he establishes himself and actually adopts. You know, it show, turns out he is intelligent. So he went. It's like it's a guy from Alabama goes to Harvard. Well, Philip sort of is thing. the guy, right? I mean, Philip is who starts starts it. But Alexander's got Aristotle as his teacher, right, right. and so that's how he becomes very educated. Well, but I mean, Philip's empire is yeah, it's huge just but it's too. yeah, but it's mostly just located in Greece, mostly right? regional, yeah. But he's still a tremendously accomplished right. and victorious commander, and then his son, of course, right. Alexander the Great, is who right. really essentially conquers the Western world. Um, it's always funny when we say things like, oh, he conquered the world. Well, there is China, right. you know, <laughs> and India, and Japan, and places like that. Well, he did get to India, yeah, to the Indus River. Get to India. Yeah, barely. But, you know, I mean, yeah. But so what was going on there. in the New World? He got through whatever that pass is. Right, that, yeah, the Hindu Kush pass. Yeah, that's right. And they get yeah. to the Indus River, and then his troops say, no more. Right. We've been marching too long. Right. right. We're done. So anyway, so this is where this now <laughs> takes place, is Macedonia. And so that's the direction that we head to, uh, and we're going to end up in the, in the town of Philippi. And so Philippi, and that's why I make that reference. Philippi named after Alexander the Great's father, uh, and his father named it, actually. It wasn't Alexander renaming it. His father named it. 
you got to love the narcissism of these commanders. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I want to do a little bit of history with you on this. If you go to this right side of the page here, so you on the on the map you can see they're heading this way across Asia Minor, going this way. Boom, stop. They go uh, and then they go to Troas and then take a boat and they head over and land uh, and end up in Philippi. And so this town is an interesting thing. The other thing to note, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 16 of Acts, so I had already told you last week, Timothy, right, a young man, really may be, you know, at least scripturally speaking, the first evidence we have of someone who was probably born into the Christian faith, who knew nothing but all other Christians, really, at this point, are converts. And that's an interesting thing to think of. Imagine a church in which everyone in it is a convert. That would have a different tone to it, wouldn't it? There would be a different tone and a little maybe different focus, a little different approach. People often who have been born and raised in the church, sometimes we forget that there are people who don't know Jesus <laughs> when we're born and raised in it, you know? And depending upon what part of the country you grow up in, you say, I don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus. You know, if you're in if you grew up in Wisconsin or you know, in Nebraska or something like that. And so it's always, it's always fascinating to me. I believe we now do live, the, the culture and the age in which we live in today has, a, has many, many points of contact with the first century uh, church. Um, the difference is, and it's harder today even than then. It was a persecuted church. It was an illegal church. But I believe it's harder today. Do you know why I think that is? Because I call it inoculation. Everyone's been inoculated to Christianity. You get what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like they got a vaccine yeah. mm -hmm. where you get a little bit of the flu. So you don't get a serious case. And of you think you know the flu <laughs> because you got inoculated. So you got a vaccine. And so, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Christmas story. Pfft, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. But that's not as we know well. I mean, that's why you're sitting here. How long do we study the Bible? Right, and the testimonies of Christ and stories of God and his covenant promises. So there are many, many parallels to first century um, Christianity, but there are some differences as well. So it's, it, it's why it's always interesting to me to revisit the book of Acts and the writings and letters of Paul because he speaks, I think, so powerfully to us even today. Um, speaks directly to us. It's a little bit different. Um, so I'm just, uh, just picture that in your mind sometime, a church which is all converts, all converts. I would imagine they'd have a passion for outreach. I would imagine, because somebody had to reach out to them, right? Somebody had to reach out to them so that they would know something they had not known before. So that's always the challenge of a church. We want to pass on our faith to our kids, right? But then we want to make sure they're not just inoculated, right, to the faith or vaccinated. You know, we want them to actually find their way into relationship with Christ. And yet, you know, all of us who have adult kids, you have no, you don't have control over that, do you? Right? So we pray and we model and we bear witness. And so that's what we continue to do. All right. So look at Acts chapter 16. And so now we're at about verse 10. So they were Troas, the man of Macedonia. Verse 10. After, now look at what it says here beforehand. Um, verse 7. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mys uh, Mysia and went down to Troas. 
Then in verse 10, notice the shift. This is significant in the book of Acts, especially for biblical students. Um, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. So we call this now the we passages of Acts, and this means that Luke is along with them. So Luke is the author of Acts, and so it just kind of is interesting. So now you have a person who is an eyewitness to the events who is recording this. I mean, a direct eyewitness. It's the witness himself recording. It doesn't mean that, the, that it is not eyewitness account, because Luke is writing down Paul and Silas's and so forth, Timothy's eyewitness recounting of things where he was not present. So you'll find here in Philippi, remember this is the place, so we're going to have two key players, Lydia and then the jailer, right? They go to jail. So Lydia and the jailer's family, um, and there's all kinds of speculation about this. We're just going to use the scriptures and stay there. Um, so those two key things happen. Now, this is interesting because Luke spends more time describing and accounting events in Philippi, Philippi than any other town on the journeys, on the missionary journeys. And really, you can argue significantly that Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth, and you know, he's in Mars Hill <laughs> in Athens, and then ends up in Rome. You, you would think that those places might have borne more ink but Luke saves more ink for Philippi, Philippi than any other uh, town. So why? We wonder why. So here's what we know about uh, Philippi. So founded by Philip II, who's the father of Alexander the Great. Retire, it's a retirement community for uh, Roman soldiers. They could get land there. They'd get land grants if they got, achieved their pension. Roman soldiers, officers in particular, uh, they would get land grants. Um, if you served so many years in the Roman army, you became a citizen. If you were not previously, you did not have to be a citizen to serve, but you could gain Roman citizenship, which is a huge thing, a huge thing. And this was the, this was the greatest mark of pride for this community because they were kind of considered not on the, uh, they were not on the cutting edge. And so it was a planned community populated by retired soldiers who were very proud of their service in the Roman Empire and that they obtained and attained citizenship. So that's the community. It also, we know that it does not have a synagogue. And the reason we know it doesn't have a synagogue is when, they, when Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke show up, where do they go to church? Where, what's their, their normal MO is to go to the synagogue, right? That's their normal, but there's no synagogue. Where do they go? They go, look at what it says here. Um, um, verse uh, 13. On the Sabbath, we, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So their normal MO is to go to the synagogue. Well, you needed 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. In fact, if you had 10 Jewish men, you were required to form a synagogue. So the way that happened is if you got enough 10 Jewish men, then somebody's house became it at first. And so they had a place like that, and they would gather. Because Judaism was a hated but tolerated religion. Why did Romans hate uh, Judaism? Do you know why? They're stubborn and stiff-necked. Well, yeah, they're stubborn and stiff-necked, but so are Methodists and Lutherans. <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll let other people ask your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, they were practically atheists. They yeah. only believed in one God. Yeah, right, right. So that's how the Christians get hammered also. Right? There's other reasons too. Yet, so they won't make the obeisance and the sacrifices to Caesar. They refuse to. Um, Christians then also then refuse to do that. And so Romans are very confused by these Christians, these followers of the way. And this is how they're beginning to be referred to now. Remember, we, we passed that earlier. In Antioch, they were called Christians. So now you have these Jews and you have these Christians. 
Most Romans thought Christians were a weird cult sect of Judaism. Believed that they were sacrificing infants and cannibalizing, right? Holy Communion, right? Body and blood of Christ. You know, so they were talking about cannibals and things like that. That happens a little bit later. This is probably still too early. Incest is another one, because they call each other brothers yeah, and I'll sisters. They call each other brothers and sisters, yes. It's very, very interesting. Really? And yeah. then they have this very elevated um, <laughs> view of women, and uh, women are in leadership and sponsoring house churches. Lydia is the first example we have of that. So there's a whole variety of things that make Romans really uneasy. But the biggest single thing is they, are, they just worship this one God, and, and everyone knows you have to appease all those other gods so things go well, right? I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> you know you have to appease Athena and Apollos and, you know, Zeus and Jupiter and whoever. Yeah. One of the things they also did is it was customary for the Romans and Greeks, but also for the ancient Near East, that when you conquered a people, you took their gods in and they became yours, but you also show your superiority. So if you go to the Pantheon in Rome, um, they act, there was actually more people worshiping Egyptian gods than like Jupiter mm -hmm. because they had recently, you know, the, it was more recent and so they would capture, you know, it was kind of like exotic. Mm -hmm. And so the Roman soldiers adopted Mithras, the mystery religion from Persia, mm -hmm. and the trendy people in Rome were worshiping Isis and Osiris. There were more temples to Isis and Osiris than to Jupiter in Rome, which is odd to think of. So when these Jews and Christians are there, the, the way I, I tell it to my, uh, my world history students, I'll just say, they, what they would say is, all you have to do is burn incense. You don't even have to mean it. You only have to do it once. Why are you so stubborn? Right. And so and that's actually, if you read like Marcus Aurelius and these Roman emperors, they're not persecuted because of their doctrine. They're persecuted because they're obstinate, right. that they need to learn their place. That's well, the number. That's, yeah, they're just being obstinate. And so he even, he even writes that he admires their courage. They admire their courage and their honor, you know, in face of death and stuff. Yeah. Um, somebody like Marcus Aurelius is going to say, you guys, are, you guys are great. You're brave. You've got fortitude. Why are you so stubborn? <laughs> it's, just, it's just funny to kind of think that way. It's just a, a different way of looking at things. Yeah. And stiff-necked. Yeah. And stiff-necked. <laughs> so anyway, they were, they, and so there was anti-Semitism throughout the world, like forever. There has been. I mean, anti-Semitism, genocide, it goes back to Abraham. There's a genocidal um, effort at that time. Um, there's a genocidal effort when the Israelites are wandering the wilderness, the wilderness from Moab and Edom. Try, they want to wipe them out completely. There's a genocidal piece in Esther, the book of Esther. Uh, when they're in exile, they want to exterminate them all. There's a genocidal effort in Daniel. Um, with the fiery furnace and these Jews that are obstinate towards, and so they're trying to whip up that fervor. So it ha those are the ones recorded for us, and then we work our way all the way up to Nero, and then to um, the Holocaust, you know, and then the Inquisition in between. I mean, there's some ugly pieces. The Inquisition, not as horrifying as often as portrayed by um, liberal culture, but it was horrifying in its own abuses and at times. And so there are genocidal efforts against the Jews all the, all the time. So even, so anti-Semitism has never gone away. It has never, yeah. ever quite gone away. Um, so it's interesting, it, it's so intriguing, even when you compare it to modern times, and I'm making no political statements here, and I, and I wish you to make none in response. But when we talk about immigration, how do people make it into our country? Um, it's interesting at World War II when a whole boatload of Jews were unwelcome in America, you know, a huge, and they were passed off from country to country to country, you know, and so that's an interesting thing. I mean, surgeons and 
and uh, electricians and teachers and <coughs> very very interesting. Go back to Germany. They all went back. I don't think anybody's ever studied what exactly happened to them yeah. finally when they got there. All right. So anyway, that's the that's the issue. So they're not loved. The Jews are not loved. There are no Jews, really, very very few in this town. Lydia probably is not Jewish per se. Oh, another reason they hated Jews is they mutilated their bodies. So the circumcision thing, uh, Greek culture hated and despised that. Thought it was strange. They wouldn't participate in the games. They wouldn't because um, they would never remove their clothing in public and so forth. Very modest and so forth. Men and women both. So, um, and, and then they had all kinds of these very, very strict sexual morality laws, so they could, wouldn't visit the temple prostitutes and things like that. So a whole series of reasons why the Jews and then, and then subsequently Christians were not welcomed and embraced in Rome. It's a miracle that Christianity actually, it's a, it's a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit um, changing hearts because all the things, the only thing they have going for them is a common language and the Pax Romana. That's about all they got going for them. And then they got the Holy Spirit. And so it's a fascinating story. As they come in, Lydia is called a God-fearer. So here we, oh, oh i got to finish off Philippi. So it's this leading city of the region. It was part of the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Produced a tremendous amount of agriculture. There were gold mines just north of them in the in the foothills and so forth. Still producing gold at this time, and then his uh, and then it ha it was right on a trade route, big time trade route, and so it was it was a prosperous, great location for a city and so forth. But then the other one is it has a very famous medical school, and so we guess that this is one of the reasons why Luke talks about it and in some detail. Um, because we imagine that Luke may have graduated from this medical school, because he was a doctor, if you didn't know that. So the author of the book of Acts is, uh, is an ancient world doctor, uh, which doesn't mean witch doctor, and it doesn't mean stupid. It just means he was uh, a reflection of the age in which he was, and, uh, and so uh, comes at things with a measure of compassion. That's why it's fun to read the Gospel of Luke, because some of the issues which he deals with uh, kind of reflect that tone of being a physician and caring for the hurts and needs of people. Do we know where he was born? Uh, Antioch is is our best guess. Okay. Antioch's our best guess. But we don't know. We don't know. So he was Greek. Mm -hmm. Timothy certainly would have appeared and come off as Greek. <coughs> Paul and Silas would have come off as Jewish. Okay, they would have dressed in a Jewish manner. Timothy probably dressed more in a Greek manner, and Luke also. Probably. Again, we're guessing. And we have some hints here, because like when they get arrested, we're going to go through this, when they get arrested, it's Paul and Silas who get thrown in jail, not Timothy and Luke. So you've got to stop and say, why not? Well, their names were Greek, and their garments were probably Greek, and their accent was probably Hellenized. Probably. Their haircuts, facial hair, things like that. Probably. So that's why. Anyway. Um, so the other thing that's fascinating about this, it also was a city of renown because a, a great battle took place there in the Second Civil War, Roman Civil War, right after Julius Caesar is assassinated by Brutus, et tu, Brutu, or whatever, right? And so he gets assassinated, Brutus and Cassius uh, lead this uh, rebellion, and so who defeats them at the Battle of Philippi is Mark Antony and Octavius, who's only, who's young, he's like 20 when he's in this battle, and then he becomes Augustus Caesar. And so he is the Caesar from the Luke 2 story, right? So all this ties together. And uh, he actually rules a long time, long time. 
Um, he he goes to like when does he is he He's, still it's twenty nine BC and then it goes to like the teens yeah, or twenties eighteen I think it's something like yeah. eighteen or something like that long time for a Roman. Right, and then it actually it actually mentions in the New Testament when you get Jesus's baptism, Luke gives you like, okay, now we're in this different history. So you get the next emperor, the next ruler, the next right ever. So Luke tracks that for you, and so if you line it up with dates, Luke's highly accurate on those things. Right, and that's actually kind of it's kind of cool to do that because he's it's not like he's it's how you know that Luke is written at the time because he's not putting like Nero back thirty years or something. He's accurate in terms of what he's portraying, even local rulers and even their titles. Which is amazing. Unless you were there, you would not have known that, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the. So here at Christmas time, this is a fun one, just a reference for you, because people who don't want to believe the Bible or accept it as authoritative love to criticize Luke, because Luke passes himself off as a historian, and the church has always held up Luke as a pretty amazing historian, right? And he says in the introduction to his letters, in an effort to create a accurate and historical account, Theophilus, like lover of God, here's what I did. So they love to poke holes in it, mm-hmm. right? If Luke is your your key eyewitness, right? Just imagine hearings and so forth. This is your key eyewitness. Does he have firsthand knowledge, right? And so is he accurate, right? That's the idea. Is he being truthful or is he making this up? And so one of the things they found was Quirinius as governor of Syria. Remember that from the Luke 2 story? Mm-hmm. Okay, in the days of Caesar Augustus, when <coughs> Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, we had no evidence. We had evidence of a Quirinius, and I always get this wrong either like 10 years before or 10 years after. It was something like that. It was not at the time, because we're awfully sure that we're pretty, I say we're 90% sure that 4 BC is the birth date of Jesus Christ, okay? 4 BC, that sounds silly, doesn't it? It should be zero, Yeah. right? But anyway, when we, when we goof up, we actually admit it in the Christian church. <laughs> when we goof it up, we say, no, this is better information. Like, you know, the ending of Mark, Probably not, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So 4 BC, and so we had a, um, we had a record of a Quirinius was governor of Syria. And they said, see, Luke is wrong, right? It wasn't at that time. Well, archaeology keeps digging up stuff. Guess what? He's like Grover Cleveland. <laughs> now, th- do you know that history? Grover Cleveland was a president elected twice, but not in successive terms. So he got elected. Fell out of favor, lost an election, got reelected. Was it eight years later? Six, four years or eight? Just four years later. So anyway, so he was president twice. Well, if you didn't have that on a record somewhere, how would you know? Well, we found it out. Quirinius was governor, and then, like, the Caesar got assassinated. He fell out of favor, because that's how you got a job. Still true today, right? (laughs) Who do you know, right? Okay, my lame nephew got a job as the ambassador to Macedonia, you know, or whatever. And so you're handing out political chits to people, and then and then the other his his family or whatever came back into power. So that's kind of a cool archaeological thing that proved that Luke was right. Luke was actually correct. We we have verified that. So, okay, so and this also is a beloved, seems to be a beloved congregation of Paul. It appears, I mean, think about this. When we get done with this story, he's got Lydia and her household, and she's something. She's a something. She is a a wealthy, she is a prosperous, let's say that at the very least, prosperous uh, merchant. It was one of the few industries that women could do, because they could do it out of their home. Because still in the Roman Empire, very difficult for women to own property and to actually own a business that publicly traded 
very difficult, not unheard of, but very difficult. And so here's Lydia, a dealer in purple. So purple, right, oysters and other shells, abalone shells, things like that, That's you got purple. It was a very complicated, very expensive process. And so if you could get your foot in, but it was a very, very highly sought after uh, dye. Anything you want to add to that? No. Oh, okay. So anyway, it's, so this is the cool thing. So let's go to verse 13, chapter 16. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer, right? Well, you didn't have 10 men, then that's where you went. You went down to the river and you gathered for prayer. Do the Shema, do, the, do some Hallel Psalms, you know, do a variety of things, uh, Hebrew worship. We sat down, oh, and, the, and those that gathered there were always on the hunt for a traveling Jewish teacher. So when they would gather, people knew where to go. People kind of knew where to go. And so if a traveling Jewish teacher came through, a rabbi or someone like that, they would say, oh, would you please? And so this is great. Here's their entry. Hey, would you please teach us? So what do Paul and teach about? They teach about the Messiah's come. Here's the fulfillment of the Messiah. So one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth in the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Now, we don't know, to be honest, we don't actually know if her name was Lydia. Much of the textual evidence seems to be like um, the lady from Lydia. That was, a, that was a an area. Thyatira was a city. Western Turkey. And yeah. then Lydia is actually a region, um, kind of a county or a state, that kind of thing. So she was the, how did I say it in here, the Lydian lady, that she was Lydian lady. But, because um, we suspect that she might be, um, gosh, what's the name, Syndeke Euodia? Um, anyway, that Paul mentions in the ends of his letters by name. So. She is, a, she is a person of significance, and often you refer to a person of significance by the region from which they came, or represented. So she was a worshiper of God. Now, obviously, growing up, that's where she became a God-fearer, where she learned Jewish practices, because you, you kind of needed a synagogue. You, you, so she's, a, she's moved to this community. So she probably grew up in Thyatira, and attended the synagogue there, became a God-fearer, Jewish practicing, but she's not ethnically Jewish, and so moves then with her business to Philippi, and that is a God-fearer, but there's no synagogue. So they're there at the river. Here comes Paul, um, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. I just love that phrase. There's several things in here that, that our tradition, our Lutheran tradition, sacramental tradition, loves, because one is, it wasn't like and Lydia decided to follow Jesus, right? The Lord opened her heart to what Paul was saying. So God's making the first move. The Lord opened her heart uh, to respond to Paul's message. And then here's the other one. When she and the members of her household were baptized, what? They didn't have to come to a personal decision in Jesus Christ? You know, I mean, it looks like their whole family, the whole household was baptized, which, by the way, once again, illustrates... American, uh, American approach to Christianity is so individualistic. It is so highly individualized, which scripture does not often reinforce. Scripture typically reinforces families, households, assemblies, bodies, communities. It's always talking about body and community and family. It's always talking about that. So it's rare that the scriptures talk about kind of that individual response uh, to God. It's often, if you came, you brought your family with you. 
Um, and that's just how that worked. And so I always find it an odd thing when I hear parents say, well, I, I don't want to baptize my kid. I want them to decide for themselves. And then I have to start gently, gently going to scriptures and saying, you know, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And we, this, this child's been entrusted to you, right? If I got a kid entrusted to me, I want them to have everything they can get. Aren't we that way? Aren't we selfish that way? Or greedy? I don't know. I'm greedy that way. If, if God's saying, I want you to, here's a gift I have for you, I'm kind of greedy. I would like that for my kids. So this is an interesting, interesting testimony. Because um, it doesn't say in here that there were infants and little, it doesn't say that. So I'm, I don't want it to have it say more than it says, but her whole household. And then we get it again later, don't we? Because after the earthquake and they get out of jail, the jailer has his whole family baptized too. So we have these several things that are in this. But here's the cool thing. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. It's probably a very, pretty big house, probably a pretty wealthy woman, a person of significance. And so this appears as the dawning of what we would call a house church. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you take a note on your, on your thing, so Lydia was a dealer in purple. As with Jesus, women played a key role in funding the mission, right? We have that testimony that there were key women who funded the ministry of Jesus um, so that they could, Jesus could do the things that he needed to do those three years. Well, I think one of the things that shows how atypical their message was, they go down to the river and they speak to the women, right. not to the men. They speak to these women. Right, right. Right. Yeah. You know, that's interesting, Bob. I wonder if the men would even show if there were women there. I didn't think about that. I wonder if they would even show until they got 10. I just, I don't know. That's fascinating. But yes, you make a good point. That's a different point that you make. That's a good one. Um, they speak to the women just as Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't, it wasn't that Jesus singled out women or men. He spoke to them all, right? Regardless of their station in life or their situation. But isn't that a beautiful thing? If you consider me a believer in the Lord, please stay at my home. And so her home becomes a base uh, for the church there in, uh, in um, Philippi. What's interesting is, so she, is, she becomes a key supporter of this. What's interesting about this is that um, people in our modern age almost kind of point back to this and say, hey, the institutional church we should go away from and we should go back to these house churches because this is what the book of Acts describes. That could be true. I don't think that I'm opposed to that. If people want to start house churches in their neighborhoods or you know, things, I think that's great, right? I, when I say house church, a gathering of believers, right? We call them small groups, right? Other churches call them life groups or family groupings or things like that. So, but in this case, it really was a functioning church because they didn't have another building and it's still an illegal religion, right? It's an illicit religion. It's not on the list of approved religions. I mean, the one at the bottom was Judaism, right? They just tolerated them, but it was a legal religion, Judaism. This is kind of how Christianity got by often because people couldn't figure out if they were Jewish or not. Okay, so they couldn't quite figure it out. So, um, but people often go to the book of Acts and say, that's how we have to do it. No, the book of Acts rarely, sometimes, rarely, prescribes how the church should be. It's typically describing how the church is at that time. So it's always interesting. The institutional church goes wrong. I'll tell you, the moment you can tell when the institutional church has gone wrong 
is when the church is doing everything for itself. That's how you know the institutional church is broken, or that congregation, or that denomination. And we're on the edge, whether it's broken. Because right now, and, and there, this affects other denominations and churches too, but if you're spending all your time maintaining your buildings, right, simply serving people who already know Jesus, right, right, trust me, you can't get saved twice. There's not double salvation, right? So the question for the Christian is, now that I'm saved, now what? Right? And so, and so that's, a, that's a challenge. So sometimes people, so, but, but you should know the early church strove mightily to move towards this kind of thing where they could have a base and center of operations, where they could train people, grow in the word, send out workers, send out missionaries, right? Antioch is a tremendous example of that. We think it's a very significant, it was probably a megachurch, probably kind of a megachurch. Ephesus, probably similarly, because uh, that's where the Apostle John ends up. And they became missionary centers. Antioch, certainly, we have that testimony. Their goal was to constantly be planting and sending. Now, again, they're going into un, unfarmed fields, right? It's always a greater challenge for us. You know, where do we go? So I'm going to keep laying this out for us because I am absolutely convinced that healthy churches birth churches. And, and as a congregation, we should ask ourselves, when's the last time we birthed a church? It's been too long, if you ask me. I think it's time to do some birthing. You know, and start thinking that way. And now let me tell you, that's, an, that's a, a less common thought nowadays. There are not many churches being planted by denomination, right? By, by, there are from little sects and cults and groups and things like that. You could say we helped renew a congregation. Oh, yes, that's true. It was still... It was planted, but, it was we, still there. but we did renew a congregation. Well, and Soda Springs, we've right. done some significant work there, too. Right. But anyway, but we've got some work to do, I think. <laughs> I think you can disagree with me. It's all good. So, um, so here's the deal. So she persuaded them. So that's where they meet now. So now they go out, and what's the next thing they do? They run into this girl. So verse uh, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So she's possessed by a demon, right? So she's demon possessed. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's as if they can't, the demon cannot help themselves. It's almost like, what's the one I wanted to say? Hagrid from Hogwarts, who always gives away all the secrets he knows. Remember his, one of his famous lines? I should not have said that. <laughs> right? He's always giving away the secrets. I should not have said that. And so this demon is almost as if they're compelled, right? And what is this reminiscent of? The same thing happens in the Gospels, doesn't it? I mean, when Jesus shows up, here are these demons. What do you want with us? Oh, my goodness, you're going to do this and that. You're the most high God. And you're the, you know, they're like. <laughs> and he can't. Uh, and so what's cool is it's not just in the presence of Christ, but in the presence of his people, in the presence of the gospel. This demon is unable to control themselves. And so in the midst of this, we have this parallel to Christ. Now, she kept, she kept this up for many days. So they put up with this, going around, yelling this thing, right? This slave girl, demon-possessed girl. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. 
Now, what happens next? We get this because her owners are now hacked, right? <laughs> because now she can't tell the future anymore and they lost their source of income. And so they talk about easy money, right? Hey, you just sit in this booth and, you know, tell them what they want to hear. You know, tell them. So they're mad. That's how they get in jail, right? They're disrupting the population, disrupting commerce and trade. They took away a fan of these guys' livelihood. So that's the issue. But is, don't you find it interesting that he tells them to shut up, tells the demon to shut up? Why? Isn't any publicity good? Isn't that, the, isn't that what we say nowadays? We don't care if the publicity is good or bad, just so long as there's publicity. Get your name out in front of people. Yeah. Is the demon telling the truth? Yes. yes. Demon's telling the truth. What do you think? The girl was suffering. Okay, very good. Thank you. And That's the first of things. That's the first of things. The girl was possessed by a demon. <laughs> and so their heart, like the heart of Jesus, right, is to relieve the person who was possessed. So that's great. Thank you for saying that. Because it's not often the first answer that you get. You know, why would they tell him to shut up? And part of the reason is, is Paul wanted them to get the message from them. Right? I wanna, and this is why, for example, Christians need to not give up. I, there have been numerous times, I've recently gone through a bout of where I've, I've said I'm about ready to give up. Not give up ministry or whatever. But give up talking about hard things. Because if we stop talking about hard things and model how conversations can go and how we can be patient and listen and show kindness, then we seed the microphone, right? That's kind of, then we give, a, then our voice exits the conversation. It's one of the reasons why every three years I come to my elders and, and I say, okay, they're asking me to serve as the vice president of the district and I'm here in Pocatello, right? In the farthest corner of the district. And then I, almost every time so far, I've said, my district president wants me to do it. And his reason for me is always this. He says, yours is, and I know he says this with his tongue in his I mean, he says this with a smile. Yours is a voice that we can't silence. <laughs> you know, he says, he says, sometimes everyone just goes along. And he says, you don't just go along. And so, um, so every once in a while, you need to have that that voice in the mix too otherwise you see the microphone so Paul wants them to hear the message from them not from anyone else um, so let's go on now he says um, uh, when the owners of the slave girl realized their hope of making money was gone they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities they brought them for the magistrate and said these men are Jews right so it appears Paul and Silas were singled out as Jewish looking and they were certainly the leaders I mean they were the ones delivering the messages, Timothy and Luke. Luke is kind of the court recorder, right? He's the, he's the biographer. And, um, and Timothy is young. I mean, Timothy is young. 18, 19, 20, something like that. So, but, but probably Paul and Silas very much looked the part also. These men are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they'd been severely flogged. I mean, it's a big deal. We kind of read past that. After they'd been severely flogged. I mean, think Jesus. It's bad. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And of course, you know this. A jailer, right? You know this phrase. You had one job. 
right? <laughs> you had one job. Like you say to the plumber, yeah. hook up the pipe. Okay. <laughs> if you don't do that one job, there is severe penalty. Same with the guards at the tomb on Jesus' resurrection. You had one job. So that's the deal here. That's why later the jailer immediately is prepared to take his own life. And uh, Paul and Silas stop him, right? Say, hey, we're still here. So they get, they get thrown into, we have to stop now. But we'll pick up that scene where they're then thrown into jail, where we have the earthquake. And then we're going to also, as we get into this, we're going to find our way to Corinth, where they spend some extended time. And then we're going to look at two books, two letters real quick, First and Second Thessalonians, which we believe were written from Corinth during the second missionary journey. Anyway, great. thanks for your patience. Let's, uh, let's say the blessing together. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. This week at Grace Lutheran, we are having our annual canned food drive for the Christmas food boxes. If you would like to drop off some canned food here, uh, that would be absolutely wonderful. All of the classrooms have a goal of 300 cans. And if you know of a family or of someone in the area who could use a food box, please make sure to contact them and ask them if it's okay and then pass their name along to the church office. Also, Wednesday, December 18th at 7 p.m., we are holding our Advent worship service with Holden Evening Prayer, and this week's theme is Christmas in Denmark with history and traditions of Denmark with a dessert reception to follow. Also, make sure to mark your calendar for Christmas Eve. Uh, we have worship services at 5 and 7 with a living nativity and candlelight, and then again at 11 p.m. with Holy Communion and candlelight.